This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, which can be found on page 983 in the Pew Bibles around you. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Amen. Good morning. Hey, families, we're really glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, Families of those who are here for child dedications, we're glad to have you. Uh, I'm going to just pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we come to you boldly in the name of Jesus because of his work, because of who he is, because of what he's done, and we ask you this morning to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. God, would you take our eyes, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding, and would you enlighten them? by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that we would be able to see him and love him. God, that our our minds and our souls would be captivated by the majesty, the splendor, the glory of Jesus Christ. God, that you would exalt him in our midst, that he would have the first place in this family. God, we ask you these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So we are making our way through uh, this sermon series, looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to spend just a few moments this morning Uh, reviewing the landscape of where we've been, because in some ways, this morning's sermon is going to serve as a transition point for us. It's going to serve in a similar way to what Paul does in the argument of Colossians, where he puts this glorious portrait of Jesus on display for them, and then he, he tells them why this matters. He's going to show them that all of these things are true. These glorious realities of Christ's person are summed up in order that he would be supreme and first and glorious over everything. 
And so I want to take a, a turning point in our sermon series where we have week after week after week laid out these glorious truths of the person of Jesus. And I want to summarize some of them this morning and give us a so what? So what? I have one goal for this morning. Here's my goal. I want to convince you. Actually, I would like the Lord to do this. I hope that you are convinced to set your heart, and I'm going to use a really uh, interesting word here, to waste your life meditating on the glory and the person of Jesus. That's my goal. That the outcome of this reality, of us taking time to look at the person of Jesus, would result in a commitment from us a setting of our hearts, a orienting of our lives to waste our lives at the feet of Jesus, meditating on his glory, on his person, on his splendor that would result in real time in our lives, real commitments, real costs. That's my one goal and one aim this morning. So let's look at this review Knowing and following Jesus is right at the heart and the center of Christianity. It is the essence of Christianity, to know Jesus and to follow him, to live in accordance with what he's revealed to be true about himself in faith, in humble trust, and to walk after him in a spirit of obedience. Because of this, it's essential for us to understand what the scripture reveals about him, in order that we might respond to him in faith and in obedience with the whole of our lives. In Matthew 16, verses 15 to 18, where we began our sermon series several weeks back, Jesus outlines and lays out for his disciples the foundation upon which he will build his church is the proclamation or the profession of the truth of his person, rightly perceived because of revelation. Right? So Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on a rock, on a foundation, on a bedrock that cannot be shaken. The gates of hell might try to prevail against it. It will not be shaken, no matter what. And this is the foundation, the proclamation, the profession of who I am, rightly perceived and received because of revelation. Let's look at Matthew 16 together. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Again, we outlined when we looked at this, this, the answer you have to this question is the greatest and most important answer to any question you can ever have. This is the most important question that can be asked and your answer to it is of eternal significance. Peter replies, you are the Christ, the anointed one of God the son of the living God, meaning you are the one who is sent to bring God's purposes of redemption to, to pass and you are God in the flesh. Jesus answers and he says, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood did not tell you this. You didn't deduce this because of your great intellect, your mental prowess. This was given to you as a gift by the spirit of my father by revelation. It was revealed to you by my father in heaven. 
and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ himself, both in reality, meaning the church joined to Jesus by the spirit spiritually and in our belief, meaning the rightly held doctrine of Christ Jesus among us. Jesus promises that this foundation will never be shaken and will not ultimately be prevailed upon by the schemes of the devil. So today's sermon, like I said, I want to follow Paul to the outcome of the revelation of the glory of Jesus. This is like a turning point, moving and summarizing the person of Jesus and a necessary response. So let's look at the text in Colossians. Letter A, in this passage, Paul offers up an extended meditation on the glories of the person of Jesus Christ. In the argument of Colossians, the meditation uh, of the glories of Jesus' person, it's, it plays this instrumental role in the worship of the Colossian church and in their lives. What we see in this passage is that the revelation of Christ's person is intended to bring us to a specific way of seeing him and experiencing him. Namely, that we would see him and live in response to him and experience him as preeminent and glorious, or said differently, that he would have the first place, the supreme authority, the supreme place over everything. Let her see the prophet Isaiah promised that there would be a day when God's Messiah would be seen among his people as beautiful and glorious. Look at this in Isaiah chapter four, verse two, speaking of the day when God's purposes of redemption would come to its fullness. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord, which is a name for the Messiah, which we know is Christ Jesus, right? So there is a, a fulfillment here in the person of Christ Jesus that I think Paul is, uh, whether he's consciously aware of this text or not, this filled his imagination that in the day when God would bring forth redemption for all of the world, there would be one person set on display as most beautiful and glorious over everything. This is the promise. In that day, the branch of the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be seen as beautiful and glorious. So the glory of the Christian life is an invitation to see and to experience the preeminent glory of Jesus. We're invited to enter into the reality of Christ's infinite beauty, his unending splendor, and his immense worth. So I want to walk through this passage and just look at some of these phrases that Paul puts on the table for us and then look at what his result is. He highlights several essential truths related to the person of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This is where he starts. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He declares that he's the, the likeness, the representation, the, the seen expression of the God who cannot be seen. This declares that Jesus himself reveals and declares and shows forth God in, in a true way, in a form that we can understand and experience. So we've looked at before, Jesus is the word of God spoken in the language of humanity so that we might see the splendor, the majesty, the character, the beauty of the uncreated God. 
Jesus fully expresses God. He reveals him. Look at these verses here. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of the word which he has talked about up to this point, he has made him known. So what John's getting at is the invisible God, the same reality here, the one God who has not been seen in all of history. Jesus, the one who has dwelled at his side from eternity past, the one who has come, he has taken up flesh and lived among us. He has explained him and declared him and made him known in fullness. Hebrews 1, the author says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the exact likeness of the uncreated God made known to us. We've spent a lot of time looking at that when we talked about Jesus's divinity, that Jesus is God of God, one with the Father from eternity past, and he has been made flesh, and in his flesh declares who God is to us. Paul starts here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And every one of these, what's amazing is you could stop right there, have an altar call, get on your face, spend the rest of eternity magnifying this one thing. And we're going to get seven of them or six of them or something like that. He's the firstborn of all creation. Number two, this statement demonstrates that Jesus holds a particular office or role over all of the created order. So to say that he's the firstborn is not saying that Jesus is a part of the creation in the sense of like he was the first created part of creation. That's not what it means here. The idea of being the firstborn is an office. It's a role. It is a place, right? It's the, it's the place of primacy in the family. It's the one who's the heir, the highest, the preeminent one. The firstborn over all creation is about the role that Jesus has as the supreme person over all the created order. Now, here's why I know this doesn't mean that he was like the first of God's creation. Because the next thing Paul's going to tell us is how Jesus created everything. So this is not talking about temporally, like in time, that he was the first thing born. This is saying he holds an office over all of creation like the firstborn son would hold. He's the heir. He has the rights to everything. That's what this means. He's the one that's in charge. He has the rights. He has the authority. He is over it all. Look at Psalm 89. God spoke concerning the line of David that there would be a son that would come from the line of David that God would make to be the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. And Paul's coming along and saying, he's here. God fulfilled his promise. When he said he would take one from the line of David and make him the firstborn, the king over everything, the highest of all the kings of the earth, he did it in the man Christ Jesus. The one who's the image of the invisible God is also the heir of all created things. He is the firstborn of creation, Paul says. Look at the top of page two. Then Paul begins to outline 
Jesus's role in the created order. Verse 16, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, in case you were wondering if there's anything missing, visible and invisible, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. So Paul moves along this wonderful progression. He demonstrates exactly what God is like. He is the one who's the heir over everything. He is the highest above everything. He is the king of all kings, the firstborn of all creation. He created everything. To state that Jesus created everything, if you remember back to our sermon on the divinity of Jesus, demonstrates that Jesus is God. You want to know how you are God? You were there when everything was created. There's only two categories, the creator and everything else. If you were there when everything else was created, you are God. And Paul is telling us yet again, hey, remember this one we're looking at this one who purchased our redemption, who brought us into his family, who leads us and guides us, this one created everything. He highlights not only that Jesus Christ created, but look at these three statements. That Jesus was the source of creation by him. He was the agent of creation through him. And he was the goal of creation for him. Why was everything created? For Jesus. For the firstborn. For the image of the invisible God. Why was everything, why is anything that exists, why does it exist? By him. Through him. For him. Paul says. This means that Jesus Christ existed before everything. This is where he gets right in the next statement. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's just further talk about his relationship to creation. He exists before it all and right now he's holding it all together. This is who we're looking at, demonstrating the creative power of Christ, highlighting his full share in the divine nature of God. Look at Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews has a very similar meditation here. He says, in the last days, God spoke to us by his son, the one that's appointed the heir of all things. You could write firstborn there. It's the same reality. Through whom he created the world. And right now, he upholds everything by the word of his power. Why does everything keep going? Not because of immutable laws of creation. Everything keeps going because God the son in his own glorious power, speaks to it and tells it to. He holds it together right now and sustains it and keeps it and upholds the world by his own power. You ready to stop? We should fall on our face. Number four, we're not done yet. The head of the body. Paul moves from Christ's role over all creation to his role at the head of the new creation, right? So there's two categories that we see here, over creation and over the new creation. He's going to highlight the glorious role of Jesus at the head of both. 
he starts by declaring that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. This demonstrates that the people of God are joined to Christ in an intimate union by his presence and the power of his Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus is the head of his people and is joined to them spiritually, even now, leading, caring for, directing, empowering them according to his purposes. This demonstrates Jesus is in charge. The head of the body gets to determine the reality of where the body goes. What happens in the body, where the body moves, how the body functions, the head gets to decide it. Paul's going, hey, hey, Jesus is in charge. Let's just all remember that. He is the head of his body, the church. Number five, the beginning. In the flow of Paul's declaration, it's likely that he's intending to show that Jesus is the beginning point of the new creation of God. So God is working to redeem all things and restore all things and bring forth a new created order over all of the world. Jesus is the beginning point of that. The work of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection is the starting point where God says, my new creation starts now. It starts now. And Jesus is the beginning of that. In Christ Jesus, the new creational work of God's redeeming power has broken into the world. It's crashed into the world in this man. This is what Jesus means when he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, all that you've been waiting for, all that God's promised about his redemption and his restoration and the day when he would rule and reign and sit as king and bring forth all of created order back into alignment with his intended purposes is in a new creational reality. It's here. Be ready, repent and receive it. He now stands as the starting point of God's redemptive work. Lastly, he says he's the firstborn from the dead. The beginning the firstborn from the dead. So in a similar manner to the statement above, this is not just a temporal reality. It's more of a title of his role, his status and his authority in the redemptive purposes of God. Jesus stands at the head of the death defeating work of God. He's the one who will lead many sons into glory as the first fruits of a glorious resurrection life that God will work in redemption. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 here. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning he stands at the head of a whole company who will be raised to glory forever in him. For as by a man came death, by a man has come resurrection. For in Adam all die, so also all those in Christ will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Look at letter F. So after declaring all these things, this is this like glorious meditation on the person of Jesus. After declaring all these things to be true, Paul lays out the reason or the outcome of all these things. Look at verse 18, the end here. Take the word that, circle it, underline it, highlight it, do something big with it, right? Why am I talking to you about all these things? Why are all these things true? Why is this man so important? That 
underline it. What's it say? That in everything, every single thing, everything, all of creation, all of the new creation, all of this is important, all of this matters, all of this is true, so that this one man, Jesus Christ, would be preeminent over it all. He would be first over all of it. Every single part of it, he would have first place, first obsession, first obedience, first commitment, first submission. Every single thing would be oriented and ordered for him to see or be preeminent over it all. That's what Paul cares about here. Why did I say all this, Paul would go? So that in everything, Jesus would be preeminent. Paul declares here, letter G, the goal of rehearsing all of these glorious truths about the person of Christ is precisely that he would have supremacy over everything. Or said differently, Paul wants us to walk away and see Jesus and treasure him as the most glorious, beautiful, all-satisfying, worthy, and delightful reality in all of creation. He wants our hearts to be inflamed with affection and delight and treasure the reality of who Christ is above every other thing. He wants our lives to be reordered around his supremacy and glory. He wants our affections to be awakened by that. He wants our obedience to be situated up under his preeminence. He wants every part of our lives to be oriented toward his glory as what is most satisfying, most invigorating, most worthy, most delightful. The truths about Jesus are designed to tell us something about his worth, his place, his status, his role in all things. I want you to catch this. These truths are not abstractions meant for you to simply learn them. These aren't just doctrines to go, yep, I got that one. Jesus is God, cool. Yep, Jesus is sinless, great. Jesus is the firstborn, yeah, he's the king. Jesus is the head of the church, check. These aren't abstractions to be dealt with one time and put off on a shelf somewhere. These are oceans that you are meant to lose yourself in that you are meant to take a plunge into and are meant to fascinate and obsess you and will obsess you for all eternity. They will be your supreme fascination forever. There will never, ever, ever come an end to the day when you are obsessed with and fascinated by and satisfied with these truths. They are meant to invigorate you and sustain you and overwhelm you and be the source of your holy obsession for all of your life. So they're not just truths to take and like put on the shelf and look at them or like decorate something with it. These are meant to be your holy fascination. Look at the top of page three. So Paul lays this out. If you have your Bible open, I want you to flip it over one page. 
to Colossians 3. So Paul lays this out. He puts this on the table. This is the man who has brought redemption. He's taken us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of himself, his light. He's saved us. In him, he says in chapter two, are the storehouses of the treasures and wisdom of God. There's no lack in him. There's no end to the glorious realities of his person. He outlines all of that and he begins his application to the Colossians, right? He puts these glorious truths on display and then he wants to tell them, so what? What does that mean? How do I behave? How do I act? How do I live in light of that? His first call to application is to call the Christians of the Colossian church to respond by setting their minds on the truths that are above, namely the truths that are gloriously revealed in Christ. Look at Colossians 3, 1. If then, well, if what? If all these things are true, if everything I'm saying is real and true and right, If you've been raised with Christ, do something about it. Respond some way. Seek the things that are above. Stop seeking the things of this world. Stop seeking to be fascinated and obsessed and overwhelmed and overcome by the things that you can see and taste and touch in this life about the value systems of this world, about the metrics of success of this world. Stop looking around you and seeking those things. Seek the things in heaven. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things where you are right now, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, verse two, on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Why? For you have died. All those values are gone. You've died to them. They don't define you anymore. That's not what you're about anymore. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are right now hidden with him in God, taken up, subsumed into him. So because that is true, seek after those things. Seek after those values, those ways. Seek after his definitions of what is successful and good and right. Seek to be obsessed with him. Seek to be fascinated by him. Stop meddling in the trifles of the world is what Paul gets at. Stop trying to be tantalized and satisfied and overwhelmed and overcome by the things of this world. Take your mind and put it up there because there's enough treasure and glory and wonder and joy and satisfaction to sustain you for all eternity. So seek the things that are above. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. So let her be the precise application of engaging the truths of Christ is to set our minds on them through the glorious reality of meditation. These truths are to become the fascination and the obsession of our hearts as we seek to set our minds on them in faith. So look at, to grow in these Delights of the truth of the person of Christ requires two necessary things that we've talked about over and over. Number one, it requires a spirit of revelation. 
in order for these truths to become alive in our hearts requires that the gift of the Spirit's presence in our minds and hearts, he has to move upon us by revelation and cause us to have living understanding of these truths. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. And I invite you to pray this prayer over yourself all the time. Pray it, pray it, pray it, pray it, pray it. This is what's true. These things God revealed to us by the Spirit, meaning we didn't deduce our way into them. We didn't logically derive all these things to be true. It's not because I have a better intellect or you have a better intellect or we got all of the things right. God showed up. God showed up. He said, you would never know these things unless I told you. I told you. So I've made them known to you by the Spirit. Now, here's a glorious reality. The Spirit of God searches out the deepest parts of the heart of God, the depths of God. How deep are the depths of God? It's like an ocean that knows no end. No boundary, no end in sight. You could never drain it to its dregs. The Spirit searches that. All of it. And what does Paul say? We didn't receive the Spirit of the world. What did we receive? The Spirit who is from God. So that we might understand these things freely given to us by God. He goes, that Spirit that searches out the deepest, 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 deepest parts of God that know no end, you have been given that spirit. And he longs to make that known to you. He longs to make it known to you. We need revelation, but we also need to participate, right? There's a reality of revelation closely tied to our seeking to lay hold of God's truth. This includes orienting our faculties, our minds, our emotions, our will to pursue the means that he has ordained to receive his life-giving touch. Look at Ephesians chapter five. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, wake up, activate your mind and your emotions and your will and set them toward the things that God has put in front of you. Wake up and Christ will shine on you. Reach, seek, seek the things that are above, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 6, working together with him then, we appeal, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Meaning, don't leave anything on the table. He's offered you a banqueting feast to know him in whom the treasure houses of his wisdom and his glory are held. And he says, the door is wide open. Come and sit at the table. We don't need to go, well, I've eaten enough today. (laughs) What Paul's saying is don't leave a scrap on the table. Don't leave a single one. Why? In a favorable time I listened and a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul goes, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's look at the top of page four. I want to say one thing that I'll miss there, but in, our, in this life, 
We're to set our minds into our gaze on the person of Christ in the place of meditation. We do this now by faith in a dim mirror, right? That means it's hard. It's sluggish. We're fighting our weakness. It's like the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. We all experience that. That is what we are to give our lives to. And one day we will do this by sight, face to face. This means, I want you to, I want you to catch this. Your eternal occupation is going to be beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Your eternal vocation is going to be tied to, knit to, being obsessed with the majesty and the splendor and the all-consuming glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear this quote from John Owen. This is, be convinced to give our lives over to this now. Now, we're going to have to work through some hard language here. I shall only say, John Owen says, talking about the glory of God in Christ, that those who are inconversant with these objects of faith, meaning they don't give themselves over to beholding them, treasuring them, being obsessed with them. They become inconversant with them. Whose minds are not delighted in the admiration, admiration of, meaning we, are, we don't treasure them. They aren't pleasurable to us. They don't awaken affection and desire whose minds are not delighted in the admiration of and acquiescency in, just meaning acceptance, in the things incomprehensible, such as the constitution of the person of Christ, (coughs) or else willfully live in the neglect of what they cannot comprehend. Or, he didn't put this, but I think we could, do not pursue them because they face their own lack of zeal, their own lack of focus, their own lack of clarity. Or you could say, we don't go after them because we get distracted. We get distracted with so many other things, with the cares of this life, with doing a bunch of stuff, right? We don't familiarize ourselves with these. We become inconversant with them. There's so many reasons we could be that. He says this, and I find this to sting. I hope you do too. They do not much prepare themselves for that vision of these things in glory, wherein our blessedness blessedness doth consist. How many of us are going to walk into eternity unprepared for our eternal vocation? Because we didn't do it in faith. We didn't take time and energy and focus and push ourselves toward God. Would you show yourself to me in your word? Would you let me behold the face of Christ Jesus? Would you obsess me with your truth? Would you awaken me with your truth? Would you orient my life to you? I'm going to, in a small, weak, really, really, really difficult way, awake from sleep. I'm going to arise. Would you shine your light upon me and fascinate me in small ways with who you are? Doing that by faith. How many, how many of us would 
I don't want to show up unprepared for that. Having not given my life over by his grace to looking at him because what I get to do right now by faith, I get to do face to face that day. But here's a, here's a sombering reality for us. We only get to do it by faith once, which means that it matters. Why wouldn't God just peel the veil back tomorrow, right? How come when we get saved, he doesn't just go face to face right then? Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't he do it? Because something about the faith of it really, really, really matters. It really matters for eternity. It really matters for my pleasant, uh, pleasure experience of him in eternity. It really, really, really matters. And so I want to respond in the way that Paul lays out here. If then we have been raised with Christ, seek then the things that are above. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's cloudy. Yes, it's messy. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I fight up all the time against my unbelief and my doubt and my inability to put that together. And I feel sluggish and lethargic and apathetic. I want to right then go, God, would you give me a little more grace today? A little more grace to look at you, to behold your glory in Jesus Christ, to set myself to look at you and be fascinated by you. This is, look at letter G and we'll just close here. Oh no, we'll, let her, we'll, we'll end at letter H. We're gonna do two more. We have to understand that fascination with or satisfaction in the glory of Christ will be our eternal occupation. It is the primary design that God has for your life and the primary desire of Jesus for his church. Look at John 17. Jesus' prayer as he goes to the cross when he is going to offer up his life for the salvation of his people. What does he pray? He doesn't say, Father, receive this sacrifice. He doesn't say, Father, would you be pleased to uh, count my obedience on their behalf? All those things are true. What does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus want from his self-giving sacrificial death? Father, I desire that they whom you have given me would be with me, with me where I am. Why? To see my glory. Why did Jesus give up his life? Why did Jesus live an obedient life and all the way to the point of death and shed his blood and give of himself in that way? Why? So that you would be with him right where he is and we would see, experience, delight in, joy in, be uh, enraptured by his glory. That is the desire of our Savior's heart. Letter H, we have to see Jesus as the glorious treasure hidden in the field, worth selling all to attain. Many of us don't ever see or find the treasure 
because we simply walk through life like passing over an empty field, right? We don't, we don't stop. We don't slow down. We don't take time. We don't ask God to do these things in us. We have to be intentional to search this out and to experience him in this all of our lives. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? As the team comes up, we're just going to take a moment to respond to the Lord. There is a real spiritual value, spiritual reality that happens when we set our hearts before the Lord. And so I want to make time for that. I want to lead us in a prayer of response, but I want us to even just individually Just stand before the Lord and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, here we are. This is what we desire. We long to be a people that is obsessed with, fascinated by, pursuant of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Even just in your own way, say that to the Lord. God, we say yes. God, we say yes. God, would you exchange our love for other things? Would you exchange our fascination with the things of the world? God, would you help us to seek the things that are above, where our life right now is hidden with Christ Jesus? God, would you not let us get so distracted and so fascinated with the things of the world. God, I ask even by your spirit right now, would you convince us that there is enough joy and delight and treasure in you to overwhelm us forever? everything we've ever longed for, all of our deepest thirsts and hungers. The psalmist says that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Jesus is at your right hand. In the face of Jesus, there is pleasure and joy and satisfaction. God, would you sustain us right now? Would you speak to us right now? Would you fulfill the prayer of Jesus right now. God, would you, would you let us be the recipients of your desire fulfilled that we would see you in your glory and be with you where you are. God, even with eyes of faith right now, even with eyes of faith, even as like in a dim mirror, a cloudy glass, God, let us see. Let us love, let us be enjoyed by. Fill us, God. We're just going to respond now in the place of prayer. Again, we have people 
all through our sanctuary that would love to pray with you, pray for you. If there are places where you're going, I want, I, I want God to move in this way in my soul. Uh, have somebody in our body ask Jesus to do that. If we want to set aside or repent for um, our love for other things, the ways that we've set our minds on worldly and earthly things, let, let, let others in our family stand with you and pray that the Spirit of God would awaken new fascination with the man Jesus. So we've got people in our sanctuary that would love to pray with you, pray for you. Uh, let's, let's make sure that we uh, respond in that way if the Lord's stirring in your soul. We'll also come to receive from the table this morning as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And again, even as we come, maybe ask the Lord to show you his desire, right? Like the prayer of Jesus as he's going to the cross, as he's about to have his body broken and his blood shed, he says, Father, I desire this thing from this. The outcome of this, that they would be with me where I am and they would see my glory. So even as we come this morning, ask the Lord to open your eyes to his glory. If you're a Christian in this room, if you put your faith in Jesus, we want to invite you to come and take communion. The way we do that at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We'll have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, in the balcony, and a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. Servers, you're welcome to come on forward now. And we'll respond uh, through song as well. So when the servers get in their spots and are ready, we'll come and receive from the table. And again, we have people that would love to pray with you, pray for you. Amen.